Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Junior Doctors Corner Podcast. It has been a long time, I have a lot of excuses, but here we are in March 2023, even though this episode was recorded back in October 2022. Anyhow, better late than never. So in this episode, I interview Dr. Lucy Burns, who is a ASLM practitioner And in this episode, we learn about insulin resistance and how to treat it. Before we begin this episode, I would like to read out a disclaimer. The views expressed and information shared in this episode are independent of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, acronym is ASLM. They do not necessarily reflect the position of ASLM. Further information on ASLM's position can be found on www.lifestylemedicine.org.au forward slash about. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Hi, Dr. Lucy Burns. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctor's Corner. Oh, thanks, Donna. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, can you please... uh, you know, introduce yourself to those of our listeners who are not familiar with what you do. Absolutely. So my name's Lucy. Um, I trained as a general practitioner and uh, completed my medical training at Monash Uni in the, uh, well, in the early 90s and finished my general practice training in about 1997 and spent quite a bit of time, I guess, just as a standard general practitioner I then toddled into the world of defence and worked. I wasn't in defence, but I was a contractor for them for about 15 years and then branched into lifestyle medicine, which is my absolute passion and the ability, I guess, to help people really with metabolic syndrome, which is just a very big problem in our community. And so being able to come up with some actual real-life tools for them has been amazing. So on the topic of um, metabolic syndrome and weight loss, which is your um, area of interest and expertise, what are the common barriers to weight loss? Well, I think the thing that people um, have is, I mean, look, uh, we grew up learning calories in, calories out, that you count your calories and you just have to burn more than you intake. And there, there is a, a modicum of truth to that, but the problem that's happened in the last 40 years that has changed, that's been like an absolute game changer, is the development of insulin resistance. So, you know, we now have a huge cohort of people that have very high fasting um, insulin and clearly high um, reactive insulins. And the problem with having high serum insulin levels is that it stops fat breakdown. So you basically you effectively have people with large stores of 
of fat but unavailable to them. So they then get to this point where they've used up the fuel they've ingested and in normal circumstances you just dip into your stored fat but they're actually unable to and so they get very hungry and, you know, then society and and, and possibly even some of our colleagues have got this idea that they're just greedy because they're, they're always hungry. But hunger is a physiological process. It's got nothing to do with greed and denying food when you're actually hungry just makes people miserable. There's so much um, for us to learn today from you about this and there's so much misinformation as you have alluded to. So let's clarify Mm. a few more things, please. Is it true that, you know, you've mentioned the whole calorie output and input and I think I have an an idea about your answer to this. You know, it it sounds like it's not (laughs) purely a numbers game um, as you've alluded to. That's part one of the question. It's it's probably isn't and I'd love if you can elaborate further. And secondly, if there is such thing as your body type being a factor because often patients can walk in and say, you know, oh, I I just don't have the body type that that likes to lose weight. I, I tend to you know, gain and retain weight. Is that a factor in how slowly or quickly an individual can lose weight as well? Yeah, absolutely. So in answer to your first part, um, the the numbers – it's your quality of your calories, if you like. So a calorie is not a calorie. A calorie calorie is just a unit of measurement to measure energy, but it doesn't tell us anything about the hormonal response on our body. Now, you know, we know that carbohydrates invoke an insulin response. Um, Fat and protein are much less, uh, much lower extent. So if you're if you're eating 500 calories worth of carbohydrates, then your body is going to have, a, you know, an insulin response to that. And that will be much different compared to 500 calories of, of protein or fat. And intuitively, you kind of know that. You do sort of know that, you know, 500 calories of ice cream has a much, you know, different effect on our body than 500 calories of salmon. But that's actually not what we've, we're taught. It's not what's been taught in the years and years of diet culture. And as an expert weight loss doctor, and I mean this from experience, I have lost and gained the same 20 kilos probably 20 times over through calorie counting, through points, through whatever mechanism was available to me. And it was always about the numbers. All, you know, basically people said you just need to eat less and move more. But it doesn't work like that on so many levels. So first of all, you've got your insulin response to food. You've also got satiety indicators. So we know that protein and fat are much more satiating than carbohydrates. You know, it's it's a reason people don't have a tiny bowl of pasta. You have a big bowl of pasta. Nobody eats their pasta out of an egg cup. Whereas <laughs> fat and protein combined, very satiating, filling, and last longer. And I guess the third factor in there is the thermogenic effect of food that is not taken into account at all when you look at the calories purely at your numbers. So again, we know that protein has a huge thermogenic effect. And what that basically means is that it takes a lot of energy to break down protein, which is kind of good. I kind of think, right, awesome. If I was wanting to lose weight, then I would like my body, my metabolic rate, my thermal effect to be as high as possible. So essentially lying around burning calories for free. It is much higher in protein than it is in carbohydrates. 
And then I think, you know, there's, I'm just adding a fourth thing in here, which mm-hmm. is the addictive nature of particular foods. So we know that hyper, um, you know, ultra processed, hyper palatable foods are designed by food manufacturers to be overconsumed. That's how they make their money. They do it through the production, through the bliss point, through then their very fancy packaging, their advertising, their marketing to children, and it is designed to make us addicted to it. So it then becomes very hard to with you when you've got those four factors to then just go, oh no, it's purely a numbers game. You asked me the second part of the question, but I was so busy asking, answering that first part, I forgot what the second part was. <laughs> the second part was, is there such thing as body type, you know, impacting on how slowly ah, or quickly an individual can lose weight? Absolutely. Absolutely. And people will talk about having a, a, a slower or fast metabolism. That's mm-hmm. what sort of, um, you know, our community talks about. They'll go, I'm just a slow metabolizer. So... I guess it's coming back to, well, what what is metabolism? So, you know, I mean, at its very core metabolism, your metabolic rate, it is the rate at which you burn calories just to run your body. So, you know, there are some people who have higher, and men, you know, men have higher metabolic rates than women because we know there are factors involved in your metabolic rate and in particular your muscle mass. So the more muscle mass you have, the higher metabolic rate you have, the more food you can eat without it needing to be stored. But there's obviously overlaying factors in there. And the I guess the biggest one would be people's genetic predisposition to insulin resistance, which it's no one's fault that someone is insulin resistant. But, you know, we know now from genetics and epigenetics that Babies that are born to mums who have gestational diabetes are more likely to develop diabetes, i.e. they're more likely to become insulin resistant. Mm. And you see it in children where you might have kids in a family where the kids eat the same food, but one child is lean and one child is heavier. And the likely scenario is that that heavier child is just more prone to insulin resistance, so therefore their carbohydrate load means they make more insulin. Insulin's a fat-storing hormone. They make more fat. And then I guess the third component, and this is really important for women, is that there are varying conditions that affect the way we deposit our fat stores. So obviously for women, you know, estrogen produces our hips, Mm. thighs, bottom, breasts, and that's normal. But there is about 10% of the female population that have a condition called lipedema or lipedema, depending on which side of the river you're born. And it's a different type of fat storage condition. And it's where you may, and some of you may have noticed this in your patients, you've got women who whose fat stores are predominantly in their lower half. So they end up with heavy, you know, heavy legs and they'll come in, they'll describe their tree trunk legs and it doesn't, that type of fat doesn't respond to traditional dieting and I'm using air quotes for your listeners because it doesn't respond to calorie restriction. And so they end up, people end up really lean and thin on top and still heavy on the bottom, often associated with eating disorders and various other conditions as well. So it's really important to recognise that because telling a woman with lipedema to go and lose weight, you can actually do a lot of harm there. Wow, that definitely was not 
something that was covered in great detail when I was going through medical school and it was technically not that long ago. Um, so no, as- certainly not covered when I was going through, which was last <laughs> millennium. <But yeah. laughs> and so a lot of doctors, uh, as doctors, we often prescribe weight loss, but patients frequently tell us that they have already done ev- everything, but they, you know, just can't budge the number and the scale, you know, like the example that you gave um, with, um, is it lipidemia? The, the, yeah, lipedema. Yeah, yeah it's lipedema. it's really interesting. I remember when I first heard about lipedema, I'm thinking, oh, the the person's mispronouncing it. They mean lymphedema, mm. but it's not lymphedema. So you know, we know we all know about lymphedema, but this is lipedema, and it's it is actually a connective tissue disorder between the fat cells. They get like leaky capillaries. They accumulate a whole lot of fluid. It becomes inflammatory. It's painful. There's nodular, and as I said, it, it extends. It can occur on the upper limbs, but much more prevalent on the lower limbs. So in situations like these and also in situations such as um, insulin resistance, it becomes ultra challenging for patients to lose weight, um, you know, to try and, or at least achieve healthy your weight. Um, how mm. should we actually be approaching this? You know, you've already mentioned that telling them to cut their calories is not effective because it's not purely a numbers game. Just about everyone who, ha- who is overweight has tried to lose weight. So they already feel defeated. So I know that a lot of women have come to me and they've said, you know, my doctor said, have you thought of losing weight? And they go, yep, 24 hours a day. They are acutely aware that this is a problem. It's important to differentiate. And it's a, it is, it's a, it's a tricky path to walk because there are you know, there are plenty of people out there who who may be carrying what would be considered to be a bit overweight according to the BMI, but for whom are perfectly healthy. They've got normal insulin levels, they're functioning well, they're active, you know, they're all of their markers are normal, their inflammatory markers. So, you know, those people, there is no need for them to, to necessarily lose weight for health. But then you've got the group of people which is getting bigger and bigger um, for people who have got a metabolic syndrome, they've got abnormal liver function, deranged lipids, inflamed, they've got, you know, pressures on their joints. So there's varying reasons why losing weight will be helpful. But in actual fact, the weight loss is almost secondary. The thing that they need to be doing is the process to get healthy and the weight loss will come. So what I mean by that is it's not weight loss at any cost. So weight loss at any cost is, you know, people doing um, super restrictive dieting, combining it with that um, berating, you know, self-loathing, guilt, shame cycle, all of which are very psychologically damaging. Um, So it really has to be focusing on sustainable, healthy ways and you focus on the process and the weight loss will come rather than people focusing on the weight loss because that's when they give up. They hope that, you know, they, they live and die by the scales. They hop on, they think, oh, I've been doing all this hard work and it hasn't moved. And so they stop and they just go back to the way it was. It's, it is this combination. It's a beautiful combination of having to help people manage their physiology. So that's their insulin resistance and leptin resistance and a couple of other hormones that go with it. 
and their psychology, which is really understanding behavioural change, remembering that people, particularly women, have experienced what we call diet trauma where, you know, their whole self-worth is wrapped up in losing weight. So, yeah, so marrying those two together and, and not many people do it. I mean, it is, you know, there are people out there who do the psychology, but if you're then saying to people, well, um, you know, you need to eat less, just have six small meals a day, but they've got insulin resistance and that's going to be really unhelpful to them. So I think the first thing is to always um, talk to people. I mean, the, the, the number one thing people should be doing is trying to reduce their amount of processed food. And again, not demonizing food necessarily, but recognizing that processed food is designed to be addictive. So if you eat a lot of it, you're going to want to eat a lot more. And, and that's how they make their money. It's why they sell supersized everything, because the more you eat, the more you want, the more you eat, the more you want, the more money they make. That's their whole agenda. So they're not out there to, you know, help people. They're out there to make money. So I always say that to people. Because, again, the companies will tell you that they're helping you. Oh, you know, I'm making this very easy dinner for you because you don't have to do anything. You just have to eat it. You just have to heat it and eat it. So, yeah, so reducing ultra-processed food, particularly reducing soft drinks and sugars, um, really focusing on whole foods as possible. You know, the nutrition that I recommend, so I work with another doctor called Mary Barson. We run a um, business called Real Life Medicine. And we recommend low-carbohydrate real food. We go real food, low-carb. And that is extremely effective for lowering insulin. And the way I like to describe it, and this is what I describe to them, and it's, it's a really helpful analogy, is that if you imagine your food, you've got, you know, say your body is like a, um, a fireplace. So fireplaces, you've got, you know, you burn some kindling and then you'll put a log on so it's the same for us we might eat some carbohydrates that will burn quickly but it dies down pretty quickly and then in a metabolically flexible person their body will access their fat stores and put some fat on so then they can go for hours without eating for somebody who is insulin resistant they don't have access to that fat stores so it's like they've got no logs next to their fireplace their logs are in fact in a woodshed out the back and so when they toddle out to that woodshed, they, they can see all these beautiful logs lined up. Some people have a lot of logs. And when they go to open the door to get the logs, it's like the door is locked and it's locked with a padlock called insulin. And some people will have one lock, but some people have eight or nine locks. So massively insulin resistant, which means they really can't get that stores. So they come back to their fireplace, which by now is dwindling with just a few coals, by this stage, they're hungry. They might be a bit hangry, a bit trembly. Their brain is going, my God, eat something, get some fuel into me, get me something quick. So it's not craving a piece of steak. It's craving something quick, so simple carbohydrate, which is then often a sugary something because, you know, they're available everywhere. And so the cycle begins. So I said, you know what, we need to open your woodshed. It's my favorite saying, so that you can become a little more metabolically flexible and you have access to that stored fat. So, which again goes back to that if you're going to spend your 500 calories on ice cream, you're just going to shut your shed. Whereas if you spend it, if you like, on, you know, salmon or, you know, eggs or chicken or broccoli or whatever it is, that's not going to shut your shed. That's the physiology. And then the psychology is understanding our brain. So, 
again, a lot of people have done all or nothing thinking. They're either on a diet or they're on a bender. And when we think about the language that comes around diets, there's words like, you know, cheating on your diet, breaking your diet. And people have this thing where they're good. They'll come in, I've been so good. Dr. Lucy, I've been so good this week. Those scales better show something. And in my head I'm thinking, mm, this is, you know, and I'll, I'll already do the mind management in advance because the scales are, are really not relevant. The relevancy is the behaviour that you're doing, which will bring health and over time the scales will do their thing. Thank you for that. I really enjoyed that analogy. And if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow that and explain it to oh, my patients. Borrow away. Borrow away because it makes such a difference because once they recognise, because, again, remembering particularly people who have, you know, who live in larger bodies or are storing excess fat, they have a lot of self-judgment. They're judged by society and they feel really hopeless. They feel like they're weak-willed. They feel they've got no discipline. They're really quite a marginalised community. And so when they finally understand that actually the reason they're hungry is because they don't have access to their fuel, it feels it's liberating because it's not their fault. Mm. And I, I always say it to somebody, you know, it's not your fault. It is your responsibility to change it because no one's going to come along and change it for you, but it's not your fault it's happened. I really like that. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, lastly, I was You're just welcome. wondering if you had any suggestions for resources for our um, junior doctor listeners or, or medical students to have a further look into because clearly this area is a bit you know deficient when it comes to um, education so yeah do you have any suggestions oh lots absolutely so I guess there's a couple of things I would always like to say to people I mean there's obesity metabolic syndrome type 2 diabetes and multifactorial there is definitely a genetic predisposition and there is definitely environmental factors and those environmental factors boil down to what you know what we learn in in lifestyle medicine so I've done I'm a lifestyle medicine physician now um, and have a fellowship with Aslam who are the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine it is not just the food the food is important absolutely and it's not just movement. It's not just go do more walking. Like stress management is integral. And people think by stress management, what that means is that we have to reduce the external factors causing stress. And that's actually not entirely true. It's really about changing the way you react to that stress. And so learning stress management techniques, and this goes for doctors as well. And it's interesting, I see a lot of doctors come through our programs because doctors are not very good at self-care. We're so busy looking after everyone else that we put our own needs right at the bottom. So certainly stress management, you know, gut health, intermittent fasting, sleep, they're, they're, they're all part of the picture. So it's not just a food and movement. Interestingly, exercise in itself can actually be, uh, you know, it drives hunger. And if we think about it, in the old, on the olden days, whatever they are, people would say, send the kids outside to work up an appetite. Or, you know, oh, those people in the fields must be hungry after all that work. But yet when we're trying to, you know, we tell people to lose weight, we go, well, you go exercise and don't eat as much. No one doesn't work. So certainly, you know, you can go to the um, Australasian, uh, the Aslam website, but, um, and again, if your junior doctors are interested, we have a podcast, which we call Real Health and Weight Loss, 
And it really addresses these two factors of the physiology and the psychology of health and and some weight loss. And the interesting thing about it is that we often say um, people think they want weight loss. That's why we, we give them what they want. Well, actually, we, we sell them what they want, if you like. They come to our programs thinking they want weight loss, but then we give them what they need. And giving them what they need is really strategies about self-care, looking after yourself, putting your priorities further up the list, uh, self-compassion, a critical skill, because, again, what people people with prolonged um, obesity and overweight issues there, they don't have any self-compassion. Their inner critic is massive. So learning all of those skills is critical and, and doing that in a beautiful way that's nurturing and loving rather than punishing and restricting. I completely agree. One of the things that I always tell my patients when they wanted some advice around sort of increasing their physical activity, the first thing I say to them, it must not be punishing. Whatever you choose to do, it must not be punishing because it needs to be sustainable and therefore it's best to be something that's enjoyable. Absolutely. Yeah. Fun. You know, I think um, there's lots of ways we can increase movement in our, just our daily life. And I mean, strength training is one of our things that we really talk about a lot, purely because you go back to that factor of what increases your metabolic rate and it's strength, you know, muscle mass. Yeah. If you can increase your muscle mass and particularly counter the sarcopenia that happens as we age, then you will go a long way to reducing your insulin resistance, keeping your lovely woodshed open and having that beautiful metabolic flexibility, which just gives you freedom from hunger and hangry. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and your knowledge, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. And as I said, if any of your beautiful listeners want to follow us at Real Life Medicine, we're on all the socials and our podcast is Real Health and Weight Loss. If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 